Um, intellectual property law, good or bad? <laughs> <laughs> I'll go with good. What? Really? Yeah. No. O- overall, as it, as currently enacted. So our choices are keep oh, what wait. we have. Wait, keep, now you changed the question. I know, I know. Changed That's it a lot. Just, I'm, a, I'm an expert at that. But um, so so would you, look, let's put it this way. Suppose we only have two choices. All right, uh, we can keep all the laws that we have now. And here I'm mainly talking, if we're, you know, we're talking about intellectual property law for people who, um, uh, I think most people these days know what that is because uh, more and more people are having contact with it, unfortunately, I think. But uh, uh, patent, copyright, trademark, trade secret, maybe, um, uh, um, and some related doctrines. So, but would it be better to keep what we have or just to repeal it all? No, I think it would be much better to keep what we have despite its many flaws. Can I ask a modified question? Uh, if we let's repeal only the Patent Act and the Copyright Act, and leave in place trade secret protection and trademark, different answer or same answer? Uh, it's a, it's the same answer, mostly because I'm, I I feel fairly positive about patent law. Now, if you ask just copyright law, that might be a different answer because yeah, so- copyright's the most screwed up. Hmm. Interesting. I think patent law is the most screwed up, but well, I think copyright law is the most screwed up. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let me let's so for people who are not familiar with um I, I think most people have an idea of what patent is and what copyright is, but let's you know, you're the expert. You and Joe both. Joe's also an expert in IP law. Um I am just a pretender as normal, as usual. Um but uh so tell us what is what does patent do? What does copyright do? Is that for me or Joe? Either of you. I don't whoever gives the best answer. I'll tell you what, you both answer and I'll cut out the one which is worst. Oh awesome. No, I, no, I'm going to keep them both. I'm going to keep them both. Yeah. Uh, well, what patent law essentially does is proprietize information. And the good thing about patent law is it makes that information much easier to trade. And uh, only secondarily, I think, incentivizes the creation of, of more information. And, and that's merely because a market's created whereby that information can be fairly cheaply uh, traded. The, Accepted, no, I see this, except for the most prevalent justification for patent law that it's primarily about incentivizing, directly incentivizing uh, invention. I, I think uh, the empirical research shows that that, that really is not uh, a really good justification for patent law, that there's very little that's directly incentivized by patent law. Uh, All right, so, although- yeah, so the, so the idea with patent is we've got uh, – uh, we're, we're thinking about inventions, things like the cotton gin, you know, that's what people may have in mind, things yeah, like uh, record, record players. Yeah, but it's expanded into now pharmaceuticals, uh, even software, um, uh, basically products of the mind which are not too abstract. You can't patent E equals MC squared, but you can patent a catalytic converter. Right. Uh, Anything under the sun made by man, according to the Supreme Court. And when I say it proprietizes information, I mean information as it is, in fact, embodied in um, some sort of uh, uh, physical invention or a new and useful uh, method or process. And the, the Constitution uh, gives power to Congress to pass laws to promote the progress of the useful arts and sciences by securing to authors and inventors uh, um, uh, exclusive rights for limited times. And that's been interpreted to give the power to Congress to pass patent statutes, to give inventors um, monopoly periods uh, for, for limited times over inventions um and so you know the, you say that that patent its chief virtue is in 
basically promoting the trade in intellectual um, uh, uh, products and promoting trade and inventions, which I guess allows for more inventions. Uh, a lot of people would say, though, that the at least the original idea under the Constitution was to try to get more works to promote the progress of, of the sciences, useful arts, by um, uh, you know giving people a spur uh, to invent. And you say, I think, as most people recognize, that maybe patent does more harm than good, at least for that purpose. Well, I don't, know if it, I don't know how much affirmative harm it 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 does, but um, it's uh, if you uh, Edward Mansfield did a really interesting survey about you know, 20, thirty years ago now, and he asked the uh, you know R and D heads at a bunch of firms to rank order um, the way that they uh, were able to recoup the sunk cost of invention. And, you know, number one was getting to the market first. Number two was our advertising and promotion. Number three was like our current market position and the ability to service the product. And, and dead last was get a patent and exploit the patent. And, you know, I, I think, you know, given the, the empirical research that's been done in the last 30 years, there's a lot of support for, um, you know, the, the skepticism <laughs> that uh, patent law sort of directly uh, influences R&D decisions. That, that's your dog drinking water in the background, isn't it? Say what? That's your dog drinking water in the background, isn't yes, it? Yes, that's Madeline. Okay. Oh, hi, Madeline. Yeah, usually Darcy provides sound effects for our podcast, but today it's Madeline. <laughs> it's Madeline, yeah. Yay. She hears your voice. She's come over to the computer. It's too bad we don't have video. <laughs> no, this is an audio-only affair. Um, uh, so, well, if that's the case... Um, well, just to tee it up a little bit more, there's been an awful lot in the news the past few years, and it's kind of risen to uh, a level of public consciousness, I think. Uh, the idea of patent trolls, the idea of people uh, using the law uh, to um, enrich themselves and actually hinder innovation. Uh, this American Life did a, a number of uh, episodes about it, I think two now. Um, and I, I think, you know, there's been certainly a lot written so much so to the point where it's almost taken as an article of faith, I mean, uh, among designers and, and software developers that at least software patents and related patents are generally bogus and not a good thing. Um, and that they are acquired defensively, um, not for any purpose in, in terms of disseminating knowledge. Um, and, and you say that it serves this purpose. Is, is, is this purpose, and when I say this purpose, I mean encouraging people to trade in ideas. Is that domain specific is that does that have any application in software do you have is are pharmaceuticals the same as software you know what do you think about those critiques and well yeah there's a a couple of different problems going on right so there's most software patents are so-called software patents there's no such thing as a special software patent these are almost all business method kinds of patents um they're what not, they get struck down Joe ninety percent of the time, something like that. So, so we've got a problem in the patent office uh, in in determining whether these kinds of inventions are truly non-obvious or not. Part of it's a, a categorization problem. Part of it's a software problem within the patent office. Uh, um, it's so there's sort of a, a human error problem uh, in the patent office, which I think could be cured. And I don't know whether you want to call that a problem with patent law or not. Um, it's a problem, you know, with administering uh, this system of property rights. I'm not entirely sure that the problems there are really any worse than any other uh, administration system, but they might be with software patents, mostly because the the descriptive 
parameters of the inventions tends to be, I think, substantially vaguer. I like the argument some uh, patent scholars have made that uh, you know, uh, sort of mechanical patents and, and chemical patents, uh, you know, as they're written down in the, the specifications and in the claims, uh, tend, the borders tend to be clearer between what you can do and what you can't do or what you know, others can do and what others can't, can't do. Um, and with software patents, if you can find them in the first place, which is a huge problem, like I said, given the, the way the uh, search system works in the patent office, um, tend to be a lot vaguer and harder. You can read them all you want, and you, you sometimes still can't figure out whether what you're doing is infringing or not. So, no, I, th- I think you can figure that out. The answer is yes, it's infringing. You yeah. can't write a single piece of code without infringing. That's the problem people now face. Right. And, but the problem, but it hasn't stopped an incredibly healthy uh, market for software in the U.S., and I, I don't see... Nobody's proven to me that that technology has somehow been been uh, been dampened. I think the the, the costs of some things have been raised, uh, but again, this you know, anytime you proprietize, you create uh, you create a series of costs: enforcement costs, litigation costs. Um, in some situations, you're actually raising transaction uh, costs because people engage in transactions that <coughs> they uh, really don't have to. Uh, legally uh, engage in, and it's ju- it's just unclear to me whether um, you know this sort of property has uh, you know higher uh, uh, has higher costs than uh, you know proprietizing land or shoes or or a string. Well, so let's you know uh, uh, for people who haven't taken IP before or haven't even taken property, what we're talking, you know, the the reason the word property comes into it is because of this strong analogy people have to uh to land which which breaks down in all kinds of ways which i i think may point us toward the pathologies and patent so you know the idea is that with land um uh people can fence it off it has physical boundaries um it, the ownership of land unlike the ownership of like things that you can take into your hands is inherently abstract, um, which is maybe why we have title abstracts. I don't even know the etymology of that. But the idea is you need some description. You can have a piece of paper which describes land that you own, and you can file that away in some central office. And there can be some sensible way, at least there can be, uh, for kind of searching to see who owns a particular plot of land. Um, And with intellectual property, the idea is that we should give people ownership of certain kinds of ideas or expressions for limited times to... Uh, give people incentives to do either to create it or to trade it or to do whatever the purpose is. And um, uh, we can make that ownership real by creating these kind of virtual fences. Uh, and these virtual fences are descriptions which are organized in a certain way that we think people are likely to find and, 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 and understand if, they're, if they work in the industry. Um, the, the problem with software patents is that those fences are just absolutely everywhere. Um, and it's not clear how you would reform the system to do any better. And it's not clear why we even need patent uh, when it comes to computer software, um, what positive role it's playing. Um, I haven't really, you know, I'm not in the area, so maybe you guys can point me to some research which suggests that there's even a scintilla of good uh, that software patents do. Um, I haven't seen it. Now, pharmaceutical well, patents may be a different story. I but, mean, if you uh, want, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll give you one piece of research, right? So Ronald Mann at Columbia went out to, to Silicon Valley and talked to venture capitalists 
And what he found was that when, when they're deciding to finance a startup in Silicon Valley, they don't care about copyright law at all. They don't ask any questions about your copyrights. They, they don't care because they know that after, uh, after the Altai case, there's really no exclusionary power uh, outside the counterfeiting context that's provided by copyright. But they ask a shitload of questions about patent law, and they care about the number of patents that the firm has and make their... Uh, investment decisions based on the number of uh, and strength of the patents that are that are owned by the startup. So you know, to the extent that that patents attract uh, capital and allow these startups to get off the ground, I mean, there's at least you know some evidence that uh, that uh, the system is working. On the other hand, let me note this is he did this study and now is almost 15 years old. This is before uh, he was about 12 years old. This is before we've had this explosion of bullshit software claims and, and patents and um, you know it's so let, let me give you a counter story to that that uh, that, that looks the same so uh, and, and you can tell me whether this is apt but but imagine living in a world where there were lots of bandits running around stealing stuff all the time right and and you want uh, you know some some city or something like that where there're just all kinds of thefts and violent crimes and there's a business there which looks really promising and you're thinking about investing in it right? One of the things that you're going to want to do is go, you, you might go there and say, okay, well, what kind of security do you have and how many guns do you have at this business? And it has nothing to do with whether you think guns will help uh, uh, build a better end product. It's like the reason you want them to have that stuff is to keep people from stealing everything and destroying the business. Uh, don't patents work kind of the same way? Isn't the interest that the investors have in the patent portfolio of a potential uh, investment, isn't that interest in like the the uh, uh, the possibilities of using that in defense, um, rather than as an indication of the quality of the, you know, informational product that the firm is engaged in. Sure, and and you can you know whatever you mean by software patents, I'm I'm quite certain we pro- at this point in time, un- un- unless we have until we have a pertin a perfect patent office, and moreover. A litigation system which punishes people who bring bogus claims, some fee shifting or something to punish uh, uh, people who engage in abusive litigation. Uh, until both those things happen, uh, I'm perfectly willing to do away with software patents. I think software patents probably do more harm than good. All right, there we. So one down, one down. How many more? How many other kinds of patents are there? What do you think, Joe? Well, of course, as as Paul said early on in the conversation, they're not. Uh, you know, it's it, this label software patent is itself a contestable idea. Yeah. So fi- figuring out is the patent that I'm looking at a patent that's directed to. So we could try to be a little more precise. We could say a patent uh, that claims a computer implemented process. Right. So that would that would help us part way. Um, but that's probably over inclusive in the sense that there are some computer imp- implemented processes that are parts of industrial equipment or other industrial processes that we wouldn't have any of these boundary problems with. We would know if we were looking at a hydrocarbon uh, refining process, even if it happened to involve some computer-implemented processes along the way. Yeah. Um, uh, so, you know, it, it, the categorization thing is difficult. But I think the, I think the um, you know, uh, the, the, the notion that patents make it easier to trade in uh, innovative information... Um, that, yeah, that's it. I think that's 
I know that story. I think it's a reasonable story, uh, although it's interesting that it points the way toward thinking that, well, then, then what should constitute infringement should require you to prove that the person who infringed um, copied the technology f- from that innovator. Yeah. Right. They tried to get the tech without paying the customary exchange. Um, right. And p- what one thing that separates patent law from copyright uh, is you don't have to prove copying to prove patent infringement. So there are ways in which uh, the the patent laws are very out of joint with uh, a a kind of a nice uh, uh, tidy tech transfer story. And that's uh, you point out the w- a way that. I think a lot of software engineers might say, okay, now we're talking, you know, within the realm of reason. So that, um, look, if I sit down to my work and I'm trying to create uh, a new algorithm for doing something or I'm just trying to create a new um, uh, API or something new I'm trying to do in code, if I invent my own stuff, I'm in the clear, right? If I go and I copy someone else's stuff and I don't have their permission or something, then maybe I'm not in the clear, right? That's a norm which I think... Uh, well, I, well, I should say that would be a kind a, a way of doing law that is consistent with the norms of the people who actually are, are being regulated in this, uh, this yeah. industry. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but that's very different than patent. I mean, what you describe is very, very. It's uh, much more like copyright. You're talking about like a short-term copyright, which you know we'll get into copyright in a second. But that yeah. should be much shorter well, anyway. There's a way to cut the baby in half too. I wrote a fantastic, Ooh. fantastic Ooh. paper that that nobody reads much, and it was a sort of formal economic model for, for patent remedies. And if you, I'm not going to bore you with all the details, but um, it, it turns out, I think, that in, in the best way you can model uh, uh, remedies based on a, a efficiency rationale, um, in a situation where the, you haven't copied, where you're an infringer in, a, in the patent context, but you haven't copied, then it's a, a liability rule and not a property rule. So in almost all circumstances in this model, if you don't copy, if you didn't know that you were violating somebody else's patent, there's no injunction that can be leveled against you, and then a reasonable royalty turns out to be the, the proper remedy. And that really doesn't muck up the, uh, the waters nearly so much as... So what we're talking about here is a liability rule is you can basically think of damages, yeah. and, and a property rule you think of as an injunction. You know, injunction meaning the court tells you you can't do it. You have to give up what you already had, and you, you can't use that copy anymore. Whereas uh, a liability rule would say, you pay these damages, and you're, you're fine. And damages sounds you know sound, may sound heavy-handed to some people, but maybe what that means is you just have to pay... Uh, the royalty you have to pay an amount of money which would have been equivalent to the royalty you would have paid in the beginning. But you see that. So let me just say this though: that if that's what you think should occur, and by the way, we'll link your uh, your article up. Uh, is this the in, paper in the show you, notes? Is this the paper you did at that Santa Fe conference? That yeah. the Houston Law Review paper? Yeah, yeah. It was, it was it's a good paper. Yeah, huge bump he's going to get in this paper after being on this <laughs> podcast. Yeah, this is this is going to push it over the edge. You know, tipping point for this paper is this appearance right here. I think, but, I think if I remember right, because it's a pretty complicated model, uh, you 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 get a credit if you're if if you can sh- if you're an independent inventor and you can show in fact that you really couldn't have found the patent owner either because the uh, it's too hard to find the person in the patent office. There's any number of reasons why it might be reasonable not to find the patent owner. I'm pretty sure under the model you get credit for your own cost of independent invention. So if a reasonable royalty would be a million dollars, but it cost you 500000 to independently invent 
uh, on your own. I think you get credit for that in, in this model, which is a, you know, another way to sort of cut the baby. You know, it sounds it's what's interesting about it is it sounds less objectionable from the point of view of the, the, the putative licensee. Uh, okay. A liability rule instead of a property rule. So I'm definitely not going to get shut down with an injunction. Uh, a neutral third party is going to set the size of the fee and there's going to be an algorithm for doing that that looks at the right reasonableness factors uh, rather than having this patentee kind of have me over the barrel and extract the maximum that they can. So that sounds more appealing, and I suppose it is from the, from the licensee's perspective. But it's, it's still not as clear to me why the, why the public should think that that's a good deal in the sense that, you know, is it really true that it took this form of protection to call the innovation into being in the first place? And if you've got a bunch of people independently inventing this piece of software, it suggests that, no, you didn't need the patent to call it into being. So we're back to the problem that unless your non-obviousness filter is set high and applied accurately, we're just handing out rights to pe- people who have no business receiving them. It, it just isn't true that the exclusion right was necessary to call the invention forth. Yeah, but don't, well, no, and, and I, I agree with that. That's, I started by saying that you, that's not why we have patentable law to call the invention forth, but rather to provide some incentives for the, the, the person to advertise the fact that they had the invention, save the, the cost of all this reinventing the wheel uh, to encourage uh, licensing to happen uh, in the first place. I mean, we want inventors to reveal their inventions and to uh, seek out uh, licensees who have a higher cost of, uh, of inventing uh, than, than they do. And if we live in a world of trade secrets, then everybody's hermetically sealed in their own right. their own little cave. So there, so in that, okay, so I understand that point better, and it, and it sounds like it really does then maximize the the focus on uh, tr- truly the the person who was the, the malefactor in that system really would be the person who obtained the information, knew they were getting it from somebody else, and refused to pay the customary fee. Right, and so we. Th- that and again, just so listeners understand, that is not at all the way conventional patent law currently operates. Right, that's right. That's but right. it still has this problem. I mean, that uh, if I, you know, if I have to pay damages, what it means is I can still be sued when I just sit down and I write an ordinary piece of software because everything you can possibly think of in software is now patented. So if I write any code at all, I can be sued by somebody, and it just depends on whether that somebody is a is an active patent troll. And and then I have to pay for the defense. And rather than pay for the defense, I'll pay some kind of, you know, fee. You know, the the fee you pay the troll to go over the bridge. I don't see how this ameliorates that. It seems like, because uh, that's what most um, software engineers fear. They don't fear losing the case in the end. They fear their ability to get anywhere in the case uh, with an amount of money which is at all affordable. Whereas, you know, patent trolls can acquire a huge portfolio of patents and take advantages of economies of scale in terms of filing suits and everything else, uh, individual software engineers, especially indie software engineers, they don't want to mess with this. Um, well, well, no, but the problem is the problem in the patent law. Look, in, in, an, in, a, in an ideal world, these engineers would, it would be virtually costless to find the owner of the code that you want to use, and you would actually save money by paying the, the licensing fee, fee than spending the time to write the code yourself. And you would be, you would be happy 
about patent law because it just uh, it just saved you money. Um, the reason why it doesn't a is because that cost of actually finding out whether particular uh, 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 I don't want to say that you can't patent lines of code, but whatever we'll say that analogy that the owner of the lines of code is virtually it, it, the cost of finding the person is incredibly high, so you can't just easily find out whether something is is owned and then negotiate a cheap, easy, uh, easy licensing fee. And the second problem, as Joe has alluded to, is, is that we don't enforce the don't seem to enforce, or the patent office doesn't seem to enforce the non-obviousness requirement. Uh, with software, there should be virtually no software patents out there, right? I mean, there should be a tiny number, and they should be easy to find because it's incredibly freaking hard in the software context to actually write code which is such an advance beyond the uh, the, the present art that experts in the field uh, their eyes bug open and say, "My God, what a what a, a non obvious advance! What a." What a, a, a quantum uh, improvement uh, you've engaged in. So, again, it's, I can easily imagine a world where patents work through software, but it's an utter disaster uh, now. And, let me, and let me say, can yeah, I just, I, yeah. I want to make one elaboration, a different way to say, I think a different way, Paul will, will correct me, I have no doubt if I am wrong, uh, but a different way to say uh, easier to find uh, is. In the in a world where this system were in place for a while, the one that we've just been talking about, patentees would have every incentive to make sure that their patents were drafted in such a way that it was very easy for them to prove someone had copied. Absolutely. So that so they would want their expressions to be crystal clear, straightforward, easy to understand, easy to demonstrate someone's doing what I claim. But like right now the incentives are actually pointing the other way. They have incentives yeah. to be unclear. So there would be many fewer patents, they would be much clearer. And therefore, it would be easier for people to figure out if uh, a license fee needed to be paid. But we just are very, very, very far away Fair from enough. that world. I, but I think even even this thing, which is not patent that you guys are advocating now, um, <laughs> uh, even that, I think, you know, it, it still presumes kind of a rational actor, uh, uh, economic, rational economic actor kind of approach where you know, I think a lot of people who make software... Um, and you, you can kind of see this kind of bubble up online and this is not at all empirical. So this is just me, you know, my impression, um, having kind of dipped toes into this community. Uh, they want to make stuff. Most people, they just want to make stuff and they actually have an excellent transaction cost reducing way of sharing stuff they make and they don't mind sharing it. If you've ever been on Stack Exchange or one of these sites, people yeah. share code all of the time and they don't mind, uh, they don't mind doing it. Um, it's not at all clear to me that having, even if we could, and I'm highly doubtful that we could cheaply design a system which filters for code which is truly transformative and deserving of some protection so that people can trade it without keeping it secret. Um, and by the way, you know, Mark Limley wrote that piece on how trade secret is about promoting transactions, right? I mean, that's um, uh, that that, uh, that 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 actually giving legal protections to trade secrets is a way of of helping people to transact in those things which are secret. And so one wonders whether you need this other thing, which is like but not patent, uh, to do that. But be that as it may, I'm not sure that this this idea that we need to help people share their inventions and ideas uh, in at least in the software world maps on to actual people who love making software. Right, and it and it might not. So, in situations, right, where 
you have commons, what's essentially commons management by the commoners. Um, you know, if you look at Eleanor Ostrom's work and then, uh, you know, Mike Madison and, and Catherine Strandberg's uh, sort of attempts to apply to IP, it, you, can, you can imagine uh, a knowledge commons that doesn't require uh, patent law, that doesn't require really any, any sort of formal, formal legal rules. Um, and if you're right about the software culture, that might be one of the communities where, in, in fact, you would have uh, efficient I- invention or more efficient invention in the complete absence of any formal legal rules. Yeah, I- and, I, and I think that's much. I think that's becoming a more and more apt way of thinking about our problems today. And I wrote this thing just this last week. This kind of long thing that didn't really um, uh, probably get it get at all of this. But the, the idea is that we're we're moving into an age where um, you know patents are increasingly covering. Software and ideas that which are abstract rather than you know uh, uh, the cotton gen and other mechanical devices, and the ideas that people are coming up with are, are in some ways smaller and smaller and shared more widely and widely more immediately and more immediately it 's just a very different world than the one in which you know there was a discrete invention and an inventor who had labored for months and months and months and now was ready to disclose this invention to the public and uh, it, it's just that 's not how things operate anymore. Um, and people share on a much more granular basis than they did in the past. See, that's, uh, and I think this that's yeah, go ahead. Disturbably false, right? There's all sorts. Of, I've, I've been going to these conferences where historical economists show that, in fact, that's always the way invention has occurred. Whether it's invention of the airplane or the steam engine, it's always these incremental advances, sharing within the community, uh, granular uh, improvements, and uh, you know that that's the way it's always happened and and you know i'm talking in terms of matters of degree and i would be interested to know that where the you know uh um, someone comes up with a new idea about code and they share it on twitter or stack exchange this is exactly what happened this is exactly what happened in the airplane uh industry so going going back before man could fly people could fly uh you know let's start the 1850s even 1860s you have this correspondence between people who are working on the flight problem all around the world these letters are, are are still preserved they're sharing freely. There's their the uh, their discoveries are are being published. Nobody's patenting anything, right? And in fact, there's no patenting at all in the uh, uh, in the uh, aviation field until the Wright brothers actually get a plane to fly. And then you know uh, all hell breaks loose, and you have a shitload of patenting, and you have a completely different kind of kind of marketplace. But the culminate, but but everything up to the culmination of the final successful uh, uh, invention, which we credit to the Wright brothers, was an incredible international collaboration um, of freely uh, exchanged, uh, freely exchanged. Well, well, why doesn't that support? Why doesn't that support my position on this? Then I mean, so if patent, yeah, patent played no role. And as I said, whenever you have a functional community like that, you probably yeah, have- okay, okay, yeah. Legal rules now. Whether the problem, I mean, just to push it a little bit. Now, one way to justify or, or to, to to think of the aviation story as a happy story, even when uh, uh, people start to patent, it's only at that point in time, right? The moment the Wright brothers can fly, it's only at that point in time where uh, the invention's uh, commercializable, right? And once uh, an invention can be commercialized, you're talking about the need for massive 
uh, amounts of capital, uh, the building of huge manufacturing plants, the gathering together of massive uh, labor forces. And it may be, in fact, that at that point in time, you need to have legal rules that proprietize uh, these inventions, make them more tradable, uh, make uh, them more uh, secure bases for uh, uh, venture capitalists to, to start to finance the uh, the whole uh, uh, the commercialization and, and, and uh, uh, dissemination of the invention in sort of a hard form to the to the masses. Now, I mean, I'm not going out on a limb and saying that's absolutely right, but uh, you could integrate patent law into the sort of communal invention story in that way if you wanted to. All right, let's. Uh, should we shift over to copyright? Sure, sure. Um, so th- this is uh, um, so w- where we are right now. You write something, a blog post, you, you, you uh, create any kind of expression which uh, has some uh, minimal originality, which, um, uh, as we know, is almost nil. Um, maybe more than, more than alphabetizing something, but uh, certainly less than, than producing a, a great new work. Uh, so, so you write something very minimal, and it's copyrighted, and it's copyrighted until you die, and then 70 years thereafter. Uh, or if it's a work for hire, 95 years. Um, and... Uh, it, Paul, how do we get to this horrible place? <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, For you agree that Larry Lessig should have won that case. You mean my wife? Eldred. My wife was the plaintiff, not Larry. What? Jill was the plaintiff, not Larry. Larry. Jill was a pl- Jill was not a. Pl- she was a plaintiff. Yeah, she was a plaintiff in that case. Larry was her attorney. Yay! Are you? I didn't know how, she how was have an I never known plaintiff? this before? Say what? We're, the, what was you say? I was saying how have I never known this before? I don't know. I was having I was having dinner with with Larry, and he had just sent me his first draft of the complaint in the district court, and I I thought he had really serious standing problems, and I didn't want the case to get get flushed because he didn't have anybody who really had a a, a clear. Uh, a clear uh, stake in the in the game. Eldred wasn't uh, on the on the scene at that point in time, um, and I said, you know, you need somebody like like Jill because she literally waits for the stroke of midnight on December thirty first, uh, and then she starts copying an entire year's worth of hymns that have fallen into the public domain because she's at a small church, she has a tiny budget, she can't be buying sheet music. It's much cheaper to wait for works to fall in the public domain, so she can show a real concrete injury. Um, by the the passage of this twenty year twenty year extension, and, and actually monet, she could actually monetize the uh, the damage that's uh, uh, that's done. And he said, "Oh, well, let's just make her a plaintiff." <laughs> so there you go. So you you are not a disinterested party in this. Uh, well, I, what <laughs> I do you mean by disinterested. I kid, I kid. I mean everybody well, knows. No, the we case, everybody knows the case is wrong. If we had yeah. if we had one, we would be no richer <laughs> personally. <laughs> Yeah, everybody knows the case is wrongly decided, though. Uh, Jane Ginsburg doesn't think so, but... Yeah, well, you know. Yeah, um, she's wrong about that. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, as is her mother. Yes. Who's uh, Justice uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Yeah, who... It's uh, she, she and uh, Breyer are the polar opposites in a number of these copyright cases. But uh, one of the reasons that I wanted to talk to you on the on the show... Um, was that you've done a, a, a number of really interesting empirical studies um, about um, the effect of copyright 
in 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 several fields. Um, so what happens when things fall out of copyright? Um, what happens when they're in copyright? Um, do you want to tell us about the uh, which one do you want to talk about? The audiobook one? Uh, sure, I don't care. Yeah. So so t- so w- what is the effect of? Um, we need to set up the. We need to set things up better before we talk about the effect. Yeah, because sure. okay. But so the political economy. If I, I'll just take a stab at it. So yeah. the the political economy here is the notion that you know copyrights are getting close to expiring, and powerful copyright owners go to Congress and say, "You need to extend. You need to make copyrights last longer, not just for new works, but for our works that are about to go out of copyright. So you need to make them longer, and you need to do it retroactively. And the reason you need to do that is because once this a now copyrighted thing falls into the public domain and no one is there to manage it or to take care of it, it becomes this sort of wayward orphan, you know, who's going to get abused or is going to not get ex- uh, commercially developed appropriately. Or, I mean, they tell various different kinds of stories, but the, 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 what they have in common is if you let this thing fall out of copyright into the public domain, something very unhappy will happen. Like and with Shakespeare, where it used to be performed a lot and now no one reads it or performs yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, again. this guy Shakespeare, it's so <laughs> sad that, that absolutely no one knows who he is and no one reads his work and no one performs his work. It's a tragedy. As Sony Bono said, who, who are you? Who are you talking about? <laughs> oh, the t- copyright should be forever. That was what Sony Bono said. Yes. If, if only, if only the, uh, if only the Bible were copyrighted. It is. Hmm. It is copyrighted. Well, various no, translations. The, are, the yes. word, the word "it" is the problematic part of what you just said. Well, try, <laughs> yeah, try to find a, uh, a translation of the Bible that uh, is more than 75 years old that's being sold virtually virtually every new version of the bible is in fact under copyright but whatever you can get them for free in your local hotel room (laughs) (laughs) and a christian doesn't read um you know uh ancient greek to read the uh, new testament or uh i guess you can get septuagint copies of the of the hebrew bible etc etc but he doesn't know any of that no i don't i don't read ancient greek (laughs) <laughs> little bits about us come out in each podcast and that's uh, in each episode and that's the little bit that's come out this time um uh so so yeah so we have extremely long periods now uh, of copyright and the and the original idea behind well i won't say the original idea we go back to the statute of Anne, and we could end up teaching a whole class on this and and nobody wants that let's face it nobody wants that right yeah, now but indeed. um uh but the but the idea you know at least um um among a lot of people, maybe the framers of the Constitution who had this in mind, is this quid pro quo that, you know, you produce a work and you agree that it will be freely traded eventually and we will give you a limited period during which uh, people have to get your permission, which means essentially they have to pay you for the most part in exchange for this thing. Um, And so there's this quid pro quo. We enlarge the public domain by encouraging more people to make more works and um, uh, the the cost of that is to give monopolies over works for some for some limited time. Now that's the story that you don't believe in patent. Um, does that, well? I guess first of all, does that story work for you in copyright in the abstract, Paul? Forgetting about the length of terms now, uh, is the quid pro? So, is it more? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I I I I don't think the story works at the level of creation. I think most artists uh, create. Uh, you know, many artists create sort of in the absence of a direct a profit motivation. But I think the story is correct as far as commercialization and dissemination goes. Pub, you know, publishing companies uh, are, you know, 
are, I, I think, are incentivized to a certain degree to commercialize uh, a new novel because they know they will be the only one who's who's able to uh, uh, to sell it. Um, so you know that the story works better at the in copyright at the commercialization phase as opposed to the creation phase. And 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 so the you know there's obviously a trade off. The shorter the period of copyright, the more contemporary stuff will be in the public domain uh and the longer period as we have a very long period now so that things which are out of copyright are really you know quite old right um and so there's some you know one can study uh the effects of this uh what happens when something goes out of copyright does it does it uh uh do people appreciate it more or less is it uh, what happens to it? What do people do with things that have gone out of copyright? Um, what would we do with a larger public domain? And and I think some of your work is starting to try to answer those those questions. Yeah, um, yeah. And the the Amazon one in particular. Um, well, do you want to you want to tell us what you well, did? Well, I, th- I think the audiobook studio is a nice place to 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 start because it's sort of neat and clean and and tries to address a number of different issues. So uh, what I did was was take. Uh, uh, selection of New York Times uh, bestsellers from 1913 to 1922, all of which are now in the public domain, and then an equal amount of New York Times bestsellers from the subsequent 10-year period, from 23 to 32, all of which are still in, in copyright. So uh, the first thing that my co-author and I did uh, with uh, the data set was, well, look at which of these books have audiobook versions and, and which uh, and which don't? And to our I shouldn't say to our surprise, but uh, to our delight, we we found that uh, a third of the public domain uh, bestsellers from uh, that time period uh, had audiobook versions that you could get on uh, on uh, Audible dot com, and uh, only about half as uh, that many. I think it was something like. 16% of the uh, uh, actually newer <laughs> copyrighted bestsellers from that 1923 to 32 period had audiobook version. So it looked like it looks like a public domain book is more likely to have an audio uh, an audiobook version. Uh, and that and and even just looking at the that a professional audiobook version, it is more likely uh, to have. Um, and we're not even counting the amateur uh, versions that we found at LibriVox. Uh, .org. So that was just sort of a nice way to see that in, that in fact. Um, how are how are these amateur versions, by the way? Well, uh, that's all right. So that led to part two of this. Day. Let me say one thing. So there, there's okay. there's yeah. weird stuff stuff going on. Like there's no audiobook version of Mutiny on the Bounty. Why? Because you and I can't do it, and the copyright owners disinterested in in licensing it. So. You know, we have one of the, the great works of the 20th century, which you can't get on audiobook simply because it's uh, it's copyrighted. So, in a nutshell, this is sort of the, the bad thing that happens when copyrights last uh, last too long. Um, the amateur, uh, and this is like you know, for, for the listeners today, this is like uh, not being able to get uh, a theatrical release of the you know the, the theatrical release of Star Wars. We can't do that either because of copyright. Well, I'm only watching Battlestar Galactica anyway, so that's not as much of a tragedy. But um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so you're, we, we did we did also look at amateur versions, and it's actually spurred part of the part of the study because beyond the the uh, claim that bad thing that uh, uh, works become less available when they fall into the public domain, which I've debunked on a number of different occasions, there's a further claim that 
um, the, the quality of uh, works made from public domain uh, objects are, are going to be of lower quality because they're, they're not owned. There's no shepherd to oversee uh, the quality of the work that's, that's created. So, in other words... Well, can, uh, I, can I try to make that argument and then you can bat it down? Sure. Yeah, so this is like uh, something falls into the public domain. Give me, uh, let's, let's say um, a work of Shakespeare. I don't know. Uh, Much Ado About Nothing. And, uh, and, and it's in the public domain and we want to make an audiobook of it. We're thinking about it, but, um, but anybody can make a, an audiobook of that. Anybody can go and record that, right? And yep. so, um, uh, so I'm. Because there's no one to say no. There's, there's no, no one, one to do no. quality control. So I put a whole bunch of effort into it and get a bunch of professional actors and everything. And then the very next day, someone else can come out and do the same thing. And now my market is maybe at best only half of what it was the day before. And I have no way to keep those people out. And so what do I do? I get some microphones, kind of like I do now, and I sit there and I read it myself. Uh, and, and, you know, well, it's worth a shot. I'm not going to put much money into it, and I end up creating a crappy version of it. Uh, that's, and, and so is, is that story true? Sure, sure. Now, that, that doesn't prevent the creation of, of fabulous, professionally read versions of public domain works, but they do compete in the market. They have to compete in the market with uh, lower-quality uh, amateur versions, and all we can say is that, that looking at the data, the existence of these uh, these amateur versions doesn't seem to deter the creation of you know twice as many high quality professional versions of, of these public domain books than of the, the copyrighted books. So you know there, there's competition there's competition there, but it doesn't uh, doesn't uh, seem to hurt the market. Well, well, so what I like about that is a story that I just told. You know, you may in and this <laughs> happens all the time in law, which is you know. I guess law is that thing where we have to, you know, we have to come to decisions. People have to win. You know, people are arguing. You have to make a decision, and and we don't. Always, we can't always afford to wait on the evidence or afford to gather the evidence about what is really happening. Uh, and so we have to make good guesses about things. Uh, and this is one where you know I just told a story about why I might decide not to put a lot of money into a professional version of some audiobook, and 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 so that's a nice theory. But in fact, your evidence shows that's not true. That people do create high quality audiobook versions of things in the public domain right. and maybe at a higher rate than they do things which are in uh, uh, copyright. Yeah. And, our, and, and that shouldn't surprise us, right? Because virtually nothing we see around us, or at least common objects in our life uh, are subject to monopoly rights. So think about milk or think about string or paper clips or, or, or rugs. Um, you know, oh, and I do, I do you go, yeah. you know, I can, Go into the milk industry tomorrow and, and open up a, a milk processing plant and you can compete with me the next day and create exactly the same product and I can't stop you. But so what? It doesn't prevent milk production. We still see people all around us every day investing billions and billions of dollars creating goods that they don't have the exclusive rights to. I mean, it's, uh, this is America. Yeah, so they have thinner margins, right? They don't yeah. – the, the, re- the return on investment – uh, it ha- has a lower ceiling uh, if you're going into the milk business or the rug business or, or the other things that you named uh, or the paperclip business. Uh, but, you know, okay. <laughs> I mean, the, the, so there's a smaller margin. All right. It's not a zero margin. If it is a zero margin, you don't do it. You go do something else. But again, that's true for the people who are making paperclips. Right. right? The, the, day you, the day no one is willing to pay uh, the cost it takes to make paper clips is the day we won't have them anymore. Right. Okay. And, you know, it, it, it allows us to pinpoint when we want intellectual property rights, and that is only in situations when the work or the product actually wouldn't be produced. We wouldn't see it uh, on the market. 
And I think that's a pretty narrow band of, uh, of items, uh, in fact. Um, All right, well, I got another story. I got another story that I want you to tell me whether this is right. My other story is, and I, and I think you've already said something about this, but anyway, um, uh, I'm an amateur. I produce, uh, uh, um, I, you know, I read in monotone in a way that uh, puts everybody to sleep and gives people stomach aches and like, you know, uh, night terrors, just reliving having to listen to my production of Say Much Ado About Nothing. Oh, this is a, this is a story you're telling now? Oh, yeah. This, this sounds is, like real life. I thought you were like a property class. <laughs> no, this is, oh, well, this is every everything that I ever do. <laughs> everything I ever do. This is this is true. This is the burden I carry. But, um, you know, people like good frights, I guess. Uh but in any event, uh, I do this and, and, and people don't want anything more to do with Much Ado About Nothing. And so then the people who do spend money and create great versions of this, they're kind of screwed because, you know, I've turned, I've turned into kryptonite, this thing which used to be gold. Right. So uh, that happens, right? That happens. And so yeah, the public domain you know, destroys, does it? I think our, our, our study showed, in fact, that that, that does happen because we, we had five minute excerpts, uh, of, uh, uh, 40, uh, or actually 36 of uh, audiobooks, uh, 18 in the public domain, 18 not in the public domain. And uh, a number of the, the versions, uh, well, we actually had amateur, We t- uh, back up a second, we, we had five-minute versions of the professionally read audiobook, five-minute uh, excerpts from the amateur read audiobooks, and then five-minute excerpts from the professionally read copyrighted books. And the amateur versions were consistently ranked lower. Uh, the, the readers weren't nearly as good, and the, the people who listened to the excerpts rated them uh, lower on a six-point, uh, significantly lower on a six-point Likert, Likert scale. And it was also uh, overall, between all the books that were evaluated, a positive correlation between the quality of the reading and the value that the listeners assigned to the underlying work. So we, we did actually find that a bad reading of a particular work might have a negative effect on the, the sort of the value of that work, at least the, the subjective value of somebody who encountered the bad version. And you might actually think of, of going to a movie that's, that's really a crap version of a book and then not wanting to read the book afterwards because the sort of movie sort of poisoned for you. So I don't think this is a, a crazy theory. However, the correlation we did not find was any connection between uh, the uh, 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 legal status of the work that was being read. In other words, uh, it was true across the board that a poor version gave uh, a, a negative uh, cast to the underlying work, but there was no correlation between whether that work was in the public domain or whether it was copyrighted. In other words, changing ownership rules and proprietizing all the public domain books would not solve this problem. Yeah, what solves it is not making crappy recordings. <laughs> <laughs> right? Uh, well, yeah, but I don't think we want to have a, a censorship board. Uh, I wasn't suggesting one. I was just saying that the, that the, the effect is an effect that comes from having a bad, like, having a bad version of the item. Right. And, and you could have a bad version whether it's in copyright or out of copyright. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, maybe bad versions give uh, opportunities. Because uh, you you kill off interest in something for a few years, and then you know, twenty years later, someone creates a new version of it, which is great. And uh, this we is ha- why we have new Spider-Man movies after Tobey Maguire's version some years ago, right? <laughs> you, you didn't like the Spider-Man three, not so much. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I've got one more story. <laughs> okay, is that too many? 
Is this too many? Hello. Well, so here's the other thing that I don't know that I've seen anybody talk about. Um, and uh, I wonder what you think. Um, so like many, like I think most people who, who um, study this stuff, um, uh, I think copyright periods should be dramatically shorter. The, the only empirical study I've seen on this, and, and I'm not immersed in this like you guys are, but I've seen one which suggested maybe 14 years or something thereabouts is the optimal period for copyright. So just dramatically, dramatically shorter, yeah. which would have the effect of if, if, if there is not um, a decelerating effect on, on expression, which I, I don't think there would be, but so, uh, would, would dramatically increase the public domain. So one, one possible fear that you might have that um, would be that, uh, you know, imagine a world where that's the case, where things from, say, um, you know, 1997, um, are now in the public domain and you know people are free to make new versions of it or or you know i mean the effect of this is you could copy a movie legally and project it and and um we could have you know films from 1997 played free everywhere um now this sounds great uh would though i mean that it seems to me today there's relatively little competition uh say on the airwaves and among especially young people um uh, uh, in music for example stemming from recordings made before 1922 or whenever it is. I mean, there, <laughs> we are in a culture of the new and a culture of the now, uh, you know, where, where people want to hear new music and they want to see new movies and play new games um, uh, and, and the like. Yeah. Um, but I wonder if you dramatically shorten that period, whether there will be some increased competition effect from the public domain, which has a kind of a knock-on effect of reducing the value of the copyright period, which is granted. So I, I guess what I'm asking if you, is whether, the, whether there's kind of a nonlinear effect in shortening the copyright period, right? Because when you shorten the copyright period, not just shortening the period during which they can gain monopoly returns, but you're also at the same time increasing the pool of materials which will be competing with that copyrighted thing. Right, and that's actually, I think, copyright owners do do fear this substantially. You're, you're, you're exactly right. If you sh- shorten the copyright term, you'd start to see much more competition between uh, works in the public domain and, and copyrighted works. As long as you have to go back to 1922 to find a copyrighted, uh, 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 to find a public domain book to republish or a public domain song, to re-record, uh, you're you're not really posing any kind of a, a threat to uh, you know the the the, the major uh, uh, players in the publishing or the music business. But you're right. If if you could, if the look back period was was into the 90s uh, rather than into the 1990s rather than the than the 1890s, you might find consumers substituting free public domain uh, works for more expensive copywriting, copyrighted works, surely it would drive down uh, the prices of copyrighted works. Uh, surely it might even decrease the uh, incentive to invest in the creation of, of new works if the profit margin is, is diminished. Um, you know, I went to the University of Chicago. That sounds like competition to me, so it doesn't bother me at all. Um, <laughs> right. If there's fewer new works being created, that doesn't necessarily mean there's a problem. It may be that we currently have too many new works being being created. So, um, you know, I, I, I just, I think your story is exactly right. It just doesn't trouble me very much. Yeah, I don't want to overstate it either because, you know, you teach law school as well, and so you have students, and you know, among these younger students, I mean, the 1990s may as well be the 1890s. <laughs> I mean... 
Well, you, you know, another, another part of your story, Christian, is uh, that uh, or that that a policymaker would want would want to try to take account of. I would think is the fact that uh, the cost of of reproduction and distribution of embodiments of these works has also fallen through the floor. So uh, that's another thing. If you, if you're wondering, okay, w- would there be less incentive given that you've diminished the return? Well, get a full sense of that picture. Like it's now much easier for you to get copies into people's hands at lower cost, uh, and and to produce them, not just to copy them and transmit them, but even to produce them. Right? I mean, uh, sure. Maybe, maybe you said that, but to film a movie, to record a song, these are things that more and more people can do, and more and more great stuff is produced that way. Now, it may be that uh, that the 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 relative costs of producing and distributing these things uh, has uh, fallen more sharply in some domains than in other domains. So, making films versus writing books versus recording songs, it yeah. may be. I don't know. I don't know the technologies that are used for these different things well enough. But one thing that's true, both in patent law and copyright law, is U.S. law takes this one size fits all approach. Yeah, and and that I think is showing its it, that's fraying a little bit uh, conceptually and empirically. I well, think as well, right? And that's that brings us back to patent, and and we should wind up pretty soon here. But um, in patent, you know, patent is one size fits all mostly. I think right. Yeah. Uh, uh, copyright is one size fits all, and like the story you want to tell is one where boy, there are some areas of human creation and endeavor where some additional incentive is needed either to get people to make the stuff in the first instance, to take the trouble of telling other people about it in order to engage in exchanges of that information, or maybe to preserve it and do the other things that they talked about, say, in Elder versus Ashcroft. Um, But for a lot of areas, using the technique which might work in a particular area where that's needed is hugely destructive. So maybe you need something in pharmaceuticals, and I'm not. We're not going to get into this fully. We'll have to have Paul back on and talk about this. But maybe you need something in pharmaceuticals to lock other people out during lengthy drug discovery and testing periods. But to take that and and move it over nearly wholesale to software is unbelievably destructive of of our best human potential in producing software. And maybe too, um, the incentive you need to give people to produce. I don't know whether it's, you know, maybe large scale movies. Maybe we actually like summer blockbusters uh, as a society. We want to encourage that, but they're really expensive to produce. um, And we need some period of exclusivity in order to encourage people to produce these things. Yeah, maybe you don't care about blockbusters. I don't know. But you can imagine that there is. But bringing that over wholesale to protecting, you know, short snippets of songs or something or to prevent people from creating remixes. I mean, this is hugely destructive of our culture. And I think that that this you know because the world is changing and as it always has been but toward you know information as being the key form of wealth now in in uh for many of us um we're finding ourselves more and more hamstrung by these one size fits all solutions more and more disabled from participating in our culture and participating in our culture is no longer about sitting back and watching the same show from the same uh, media empire. It's about producing our own stuff and trading it with people. And uh, so I think that what we're seeing is uh, moving more, more and more toward a, I keep saying more and more. I yeah, apo- you need, I you need less and less, more and more. I do. More and more, I'm saying more and more on the show. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, geez. I think I'll stop there. I agree. Here, here.
that I should stop. I, I like that, Paul. Yeah. Yeah. What, what do you have any last words, Paul? Uh, no, not really. It's, it's been, it's been great. I'm, I'm really, uh, glad you all are doing this. this well, let me, a lot of fun. well, I do, I do think you have one more thing to say. I do. This is, this is a tease because you will be back on. Oh yeah. This recording um, is copyrighted and, uh, we'll prosecute to the full extent of the law. Anybody who, uh, transmits <laughs> permission. Ah! Oh, we should, that would be a great place to end it. But I want, I want to end with a little tease. And that is, uh, Paul. What are you, are you doing? Anything new that might extend your audiobook study? Is there? <laughs> well, now that you mention it, uh, <laughs> uh, Chris Buckafusco and I have just gotten our IRB approval to run our human subjects experiment, uh, whereby we will measure the effect of the exposure uh, on human subjects to uh, porn parody movie posters and uh, attempt to measure the any negative effect uh, that might have on their underlying uh, desire to uh, to see the uh, actual motion picture. So, uh, so would you mind giving us an example? No, well, it's I a, think, it's, I'm this sure is a family podcast. I'm sure there's an example. Christian, calm down. <laughs> I'm sure there's at least one example he can give us that is not, um, that is not uh, consciousness-destroying salaciousness, that he can give us... Something that will not actually knock us asleep. Ab- absolutely, I can, I can. Let me just read a couple of these, these <laughs> movie titles here that we're using. We got a very nice poster from a, a film called a, a A Rare and Pleasant Danger. Uh, let's see, Crocodile Crocodile Blondie is uh, ah. certainly uh, certainly one of the more prominent ones. Uh, ooh, and, and 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 the test is whether so you see Crocodile Blondie. Or you've and, got shemale. Here we go. You've got shemale. That's one of the posters. We <laughs> wow. <laughs> now, how can you ever go back and look at the original in the same way? That's well, the question, right? Can you do that? Can you yeah. go back again, Paul? Exactly. Can you go back again? Exactly. And uh, we've got some of these posters are really pretty classic. The poster for for Bitanic, for example, is very, very classic. Uh, oh dear. How could it not be? Yeah. I mean, with a title like that. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's true. Oh dear! Uh, yeah, some of these. All right. Are, yeah. All right. What, what's what's really save great about some, this, save some for the next what, time. What's you're great on. about this uh, study and the others that you've done is, and Christian mentioned this before, is it's very easy. Oh, wait, here, um, here's one: Walking Small. <laughs> this is a, a porn movie starring a lot of uh, little midgets. People. Uh, yeah. I'm not entirely sure it's a politically correct way to refer to do this, but yes. Okay. Um, <laughs> this study and other studies, you're 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 testing stuff. I mean, lawyers. Uh, and judges and others who make uh, law and other forms of uh, social policy, um, you know, you you can't always wait for the best data. You have to do the best you can with what you know. Um, but it's great to actually go try to find out if what the things that people believe are true are actually true. Yes. So, okay. uh, so kudos to Paul. Indeed. Well, I mean, public policy, you know, it's normally made on the basis of factual assumptions. So, uh, the more test your assumptions. No, right, exactly. You know, I think I'm going to go back and cut it off at you've got she mail. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you want to use the phrase cut it off and you've got she mail in the same sentence. I think we're really <laughs> circling the drain here. <laughs> yeah, I think we are. I think, I think we're done. Thanks, Paul. Thank you, Paul. Hey. <laughs>